invite you to take out your Bible and turn to uh, Galatians chapter 5 today. It's on page 1155, but maybe not of your Bible. So that might help you get there. So go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and it starts getting complicated. First, Second Corinthians, and then finally you get to GEPC, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, GE Power Company. Um, you're on the G part. Galatians chapter 5, we're in a message series where we're looking at core teachings of Jesus, core actions of a disciple. Um, And I really do think that our thought life is immensely important in our actions. Um, One of the the dangers of having a a teaching series is you can start repeating some of the same things. I'm not going to do that, um, hopefully, too much. But I do want to review... Um, just the, the kinds of beliefs that we have. We can have um, what are known as public beliefs. Those are beliefs that we want everyone to think that we believe, but we, we might not believe them. Um, private beliefs are beliefs that we think we believe, but we might not believe them. It's core beliefs that actually are proven by our actions. And those are the beliefs that, that really penetrate our hearts. And so while I say that our thought life is deeply important in our actions, what I mean by that is our core beliefs are deeply important to our actions. And one of the reasons why we've had our, our kids and the rest of us confessing the Apostles' Creed for uh, six, seven Sundays in a row is we are reinforcing beliefs that we want to become core beliefs in us. That, that shape our actions. There are some beliefs that penetrate our hearts. And let me give you one more thought of what deeply affects our actions, and that is our motives. Our core beliefs can direct our motives. And if you want to look for kind of a direct cause of what you do, it's your motives. And we're going to read a, a scripture from Galatians chapter 5 where Paul talks about this tension in our motives. He's looking at it at two different, from two different directions, and they are contradictory with one another, these two motives. So listen for these two motives as we read Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but did not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so for us as Christians, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. We believe that is true, right? Is that a public belief, a private belief? Yeah, we believe it's true, but do we really believe it? Or is it a core belief? Has that penetrated your heart? Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, if you bite and devour each other. Watch out, or you will be devoured by each, or be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you 
are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So these two forces at intention with one another, shaping our motives, the flesh, the Spirit. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So I've been thinking about motives lately for a couple of reasons. The, the, the war in Ukraine um, lays bare the often dark human heart. War can do that. can help us look at the human heart and say, there's, there's some darkness in there. And another reason I've been thinking about motives is because they are profoundly important to this message series about our core actions, and our core actions are directed by our motives, which I believe, over time, are our beliefs, become core beliefs, and they shape our motives. <laughs> Now, last week we read Luke chapter 6, verse 45, which says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Our heart has these motives in them and directs our actions. Jesus tells us that there are these powerful urges in our inner being. Um. And to be honest, let me be honest with you this morning, I, I don't trust my own motives at times, and I, I need to listen to the sermon. I need to, I need to really think deeply about my motives, and I know that I have hidden motives. So I need something outside of myself. I need God coming in and helping to shape my motives because I don't trust my own motives. My motives come way down deep from my heart. And if I were to take a picture of way down deep in my heart, sometimes that picture wouldn't be very pretty. So if you care about your actions, which you do, you have to realize we have this war of inner motives going on. And I think that's what Paul is doing here in Galatians 5, this this war of motives. Paul helps us to see one really key point. We are all motivated by something. There's two powerful motivations, acts of the the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. We're pulled by them. So we had better know a little bit about them. So I want to go through these these two different tensions in our heart. Say a few things about the desires of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So let's start with the desires of the flesh. Um, Paul introduces them in verse 16. He calls them works. 
Verse nine, well, verse nineteen, he calls them, them acts. I think acts of the flesh, but that word mean, means works. And what is Paul saying? I think he's saying that disobedience is work. I mean, sometimes it can come easily, but it's work. It like works over your your body, works you over. Desires of the flesh don't make life easy, and they drain you. So they may come easily, but they don't make life easy. They can drain you. When was the last time uh, you've been completely enraged, just madder than all get out? You're bent out of shape throughout the whole day. You're stewing at the end of the day. How often do you go through that and think, oh, I feel so refreshed? Oh, it, the, the desires of the flesh work you over, <laughs> drain you. And the desires of the flesh are all attempts to gain control. Not that control is bad, because if you remember in this, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul mentions self-control as one of, of the fruit. Um, so not all control is bad, but the desires of flesh seek control in illegitimate ways. Think of the list, uh, starting in verse 19, Paul names sexual immorality, starts this list, sexual immorality. And listen, unless sexual relationship is within the context of marriage, it always is an act of control, even if it doesn't uh, feel like it. Because only in um, the context of marriage. Um, is it is it purely self-giving? Um, if uh, only in in a, in a lifelong marriage covenant can sex be self-giving. Outside of the marriage covenant, sex what is it? It becomes becomes related uh, an issue of performance. Now, if I'm not pleasing my sexual partner, he or she will bolt. Sex is used to maintain the relationship outside of marriage. It's used to maintain the relationship. And when sex is no longer fulfilling, I can just disregard, discard that relationship. I can move on. See, it's only within the context of marriage will you be telling your sexual partner, you don't have to prove anything to me. You don't have to um, do anything for me. You don't have to be anything for me. And I will still love you faithfully. So you see, it's life-giving within the context of marriage. It is an act of control. I'm trying to control the other outside of the context of marriage. So Paul starts there, and he keeps listening. We're not going to go through all of them, but let me point out a few other of, of these acts of the flesh, which are forms of control. Idolatry, in verse 20. Idolatry is more than just worshiping something or giving your heart to something. Idolatry at its essence is trying to manipulate the God that I am worshiping, whether that's a a, a belief deity God or something of this world, like your work, like your image. I can make anything my idol and try to get it to serve me. My work can be my idol, and I will work, 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 and I will keep working, so that my work will serve me and 
build up my sense of self and accomplishments. And that holds true for other things that we can turn into idols, our looks, our sports performance, academic performance. When they become an idol, I'm using them to control how I feel about myself. Idolatry is control. Witchcraft, he mentions witchcraft, and we certainly can see how this would be an attempt to control, control the powers of darkness. Um, you know, just, a, just a word on this so that it's relevant and doesn't seem dated. Um, you don't have to go far in the Bible to find very sobering warnings of the powers of darkness. Stay away from dabbling in, in the occult. Um, one, because there's real danger there. Two, recognize that it's, it's a, I'm trying to control. I'm trying to control that which God says you don't need to control. Hatred, discord, he mentions. Always being ready for a, a verbal fight. Do you know anyone like that that's always ready for a verbal fight? I'm seeking to control you through my expressions of anger, through my angry words. Dissensions, factions, I'm seeking to control others, aligning them to to my side of things and putting them against who I think is my enemy. So Paul mentions all these actions that are ways of control. And then there's a few that actions that relinquish control. I think ultimately in order to gain control, but relinquish control. In verse 21, Paul mentions drunkenness and orgies. And orgies here probably isn't sex parties like we think of them today, because Paul had already mentioned sexual immorality as one of the acts of the flesh. But rather just unrestrained pleasure through food and drink, and, and part, not just having a good time, but just unrestrained um, loss of yourself through, through pleasure. I'm going to be in control through always pursuing pleasure. So I think one thing that Paul wants us to consider is control. Is that a motivation of yours? Do I, do I want to be in control of the things that God says you do not need to be in control over? Let's control your motivation. If it is, Paul has a warning. Look at, at, the, end, look at the end of verse 21. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't a threat. I really don't think this is a threat. Some people think that God is like the giant bully, always threatening. If you don't do what I want you to do, you'll get it. I'll punish you. I'll punish you with hell. I think this is more of natural consequences. If control is my motivation then what am I trying to achieve if day in and day out I am seeking control over things? What what am I really seeking? I'm seeking to build up my own kingdom. I want to be king. I want to be king of my kingdom. And if I'm trying to be the king of my kingdom, why would I want to move into or live into another kingdom? God's kingdom. I never will. You see, when I'm seeking control of that which God says you don't need to control, I'm hardening my heart against God. I'm building my own kingdom. And I won't want to move into God's kingdom. And God will support my decision not to enter because God is not a tyrant. 
or I can be motivated by something altogether different. In fact, Paul says, you can be motivated in, in a way such that obedience to God won't feel as much like work. Sometimes it feels like work. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to really want to try to be obedient to God. And sometimes it can feel like work. But Paul is saying there's a motive that can be in your heart that will turn obedience to God much less like work and more like natural living. And it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So I want to look at three important qualities about the fruit of the Spirit. One, the fruit of the Spirit grows holistically. There is a tendency to think of this this description of the fruit as um, as a list of discrete produce items like on your grocery list. And you're going to the farmer's market. You're not going to H-E-B, you're going to the farmer's market. Let's make it fun and quaint. You're going up to the farmer's market, and you're picking up the produce that you're short of. Like, I need some avocados. Well, I'll get those. I need some squash. I'll get that. I don't need tomatoes. I'm sick and tired of tomatoes. I don't need any tomatoes. I'm going to leave those... There, um, and, and we treat our inner life a little like that. Um, you know, I hey, I'm pretty good on kindness, but boy, I really need patience. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna really, I'm gonna that farmer's market. I'm gonna give me some patience. I'm gonna pray for it, and I really need peace. I'm gonna really stress out. I'm gonna pray for that. God, give me, give me peace. We'll work, work really hard at that. And, and you know, I, I kind of am exaggerating a little bit in my tone, but don't you see how that's kind of controlling? It's, God, I need this. I need patience. I need this one. And so you go to this farmer's market and just get that one thing off the shelf. Um, but, but one thing we have to realize is the, the, the word for fruit in verse 22, it is singular. It's singular fruit. Let's put that, that, that verse up. But the fruit of the Spirit, so it's not just singular in, in, the, in the English there. Um, but in the original language, it's, it's in the singular form. It's, elsewhere, it's used in the plural form, but not there. But the fruit, the one fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So Paul is describing one complex fruit that grows in you. And, and the truth is that that fruit grows together. All of these inner traits are descriptions of, of love, aren't they? And I, I can't have some of these present and others absent. If it really is the fruit of the Spirit, um, because they all, they all grow together and they support one another. Gentleness, if I'm gentle, it's certainly going to help me be kind. If I am not gentle, it is really hard to be kind. Um, I'm really, it's really hard for me to be forbearing or patient if I'm not gentle. If I have this inner goodness, it's easy to, to show kindness. If I have this inner goodness, it's easy for me to, to show faithfulness. 
If I'm not good, if that's not an essential quality in my heart, it's hard for me to to show kindness or, or faithfulness. You get the picture. These grow together and they all support one another. Um, it's one fruit. It is the fruit of love, inspired and perpetuated by joy and peace that brings about these other actions of forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's it's love, expressions of love that are maintained, that that are propelled, that are fueled by joy and peace, that come in the form of being patient with one another and kind and good and faithful and gentle and showing self-control. Okay, two. So it's singular fruit, two. Fruit of the Spirit grows from grace and not legalism. See, one of the worst things you can take from this scripture or a sermon like this is a sense of guilt. Oh, gosh, pastor's talking about being patient again, and I've blown it this week. I'm no good at showing patience or forbearance with others. I better get my act together. And we turn this just into a a legalistic act of duty. And what I think is happening in the Scripture is Paul is, yes, there's a warning about the acts of the flesh, but when he gets to the fruit of the Spirit, I think this is encouragement all the way. I think this is Paul trying to inspire Christians about the life that God wants for us instead of us making, making us feel guilty about not having it. Paul's just kind of encouraging Christians on. God wants to grow this in you. He wants to grow this in you. So when we approach Galatians 5, 22 and 23, be inspired, don't be inflicted with guilt. Allow God to nurture these in you instead of feeling, ah, I'm no good at this. Three, fruit of the Spirit depends on our relationship with God and deepens our relationship with people. It depends on a relationship with God. Look at verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit grows this fruit. We live by the Spirit. But we still have a part to play in its growth. Um, Our inner being is alive through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is able to grow this fruit. But, Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit since you're made alive by the Spirit. That means listen very closely to what God says. Be intentional and then act accordingly. Act accordingly. I thought of um, the many trips that my family has taken out to the hill country, go camping and go hiking. Um when my, my kids were really little and you go hiking in the hill country, there's all these little streams and, and creeks that you get across. They're really beautiful. And they have little limestone rocks that, you know, either people have put there or kind of naturally formed that, that make these little bridges over these creeks and streams and things. And, and I'd, I'd, I'd lead my kids through the, through the stream and say, all right, you need to, to follow my steps you got to step on this rock and step on this rock. Watch out for that rock right there. See how it's wobbly? Don't step on that. You'll fall in. And then we get to this section. you got to take a really big step here and then a, and keep going forward. And, 
and, and keep moving with your other foot. So big step with your left and then to the right. And if you do all this, if you follow my steps, you won't fall in. Why? Wow, you fell in. Why'd you fall in? Because you weren't following my steps. Um, we'd make it to the other side. Oh, we made it. Wait, mom wants a picture of us in the middle of the creek. Oh, I got to go back out in the middle. You know, follow my steps. We have to keep in step with the Spirit daily. The, the fruit of the Spirit, it does not grow in us when we initially say, God, I want you to come into my life. I want you to come take over. And then when we do nothing to facilitate that, when we, when we do not intentionally keep in step with the Spirit and see where the Spirit walks, watch where the Spirit puts his feet and Go accordingly. So, seek God continually. And I want to say this again. Because God doesn't force takeovers. He is not, we've seen tyrants this week. God is not like that. God doesn't invade without your permission. doesn't take over hostily. God will not take the role of unwanted intruder. God will not take the role of unwanted houseguest. You might think of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, this promise that we hear from, from Jesus, or this, this offer, invitation. Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they will be with me. And, what, and, and I know many of you know this. Um, that is not written originally to non-Christians. I mean, it is an invitation to non-Christians. This morning, if, if you're here and you're kind of new to church and I don't know what it's like following God, well, this invitation stands for you today. Here I am. I stand at the door and then I knock. And if you open that door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. That's your invitation this morning. But that was originally written to Christians who were lukewarm in their faith. God's, God, God knocks. Jesus knocks at the door. That's, that's the kind of house guest that Jesus is. The kind that knocks on the door, and when you invite him in, he comes in. So the fruit depends on our relationship with God, and then it deepens our relationship with people. And what I want to do over the next two weeks, the rest of today, just for a few minutes in the next week, is I want to talk about how the fruit of the Spirit develops our relationships with, with other people, how it deepens our relationships with other people. So today we're going to look at goodness and kindness. You don't have to be an expert at virtue to recognize how closely linked kindness and goodness are. If you look at the definitions of kindness and goodness, often you'll see something like this. What is kind? Well, it's, you know, the act of being good. What is goodness? Well, it's being kind. You know, they're, they're, they're very similar. Let's look at how they are related. Goodness in this, in this list is inner goodness. There's a couple of ways that we use good. We can use good to describe inner goodness. We can use Good to describe um, aesthetic goodness. Oh, that's, that's a really beautiful painting. That, that's, good. that's a good work of art. 
Um, if you invite me over to dinner and you bake just a delicious meal, I will say that is a good dinner. Thank you. And I'm not saying that it's aesthetically good. I'm, well, visually, well, it could be. I'm saying it tasted good. Um, but what I'm not saying is that it's, you know, it has this inner goodness, that, that it's, you know, that its essence is noble. You know. um, well, so here Paul is using this word for inner goodness, agathos. That's where we get our name Agatha, like Agatha Christie, who wrote all the murder mystery novels. It's kind of a, a good a paradoxical name for her, right? It's this inner goodness. You are good in your inner being. Uh, and kindness, I think, is living out this goodness. Where goodness may seem like a state, our inner essence, kindness is an action. So I wrote this about kindness. Kindness meets human needs and avoids human harshness. I think we recognize kindness a lot when we see it, and we recognize the absence of kindness when we don't see it. If you felt stomped on by someone else, that person has not been kind to you. Um, kindness is something that respects deeply the inherent value of a human being who is created by God in God's image. So James talks about this. In chapter 3, here's what James says about the tongue, how we use our tongue. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we can do something very contrary to that. We curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters. This should not be. And so there's, there's actions that we should show to one another simply because we are commonly created in God's image. And kindness is one of those things that people should receive simply because they've been made in God's likeness. So things we do to honor or to bless or to help or to lift up others because they're made in God's image, those are acts of kindness, generosity, assistance. The Good Samaritan, we looked at that a month ago or so. That's an act of kindness. Using your power to serve someone instead of bossing someone around, that's kindness. Showing compassion, that's kindness. What I want you to notice is that kindness, those are much better expressions of kindness than thinking of kindness as being nice. I don't think nice is a great synonym for kindness. But compassion is, service is, assistance, generosity, those are all good synonyms for kindness. Um, But we know that goodness and kindness don't automatically happen. Kindness and goodness are inspired by love, joy, and peace. It starts with God's love for you. Listen, if you know that you are loved by God, (laughs) you can have joy and peace. And I think really that's the only way to have lasting joy and peace. 
I mean, if you want joy and peace, you can try to manufacture that. You can, you can try to lower your expectations of this world as low as you can go so that you're not disappointed. You can go full stoicism or Buddhism and just, I don't want to have any desires whatsoever, so I'm not disappointed in life so that I can have joy and peace. Well, you might be able to manufacture it for a little while, but it won't be lasting. You can go on the opposite spectrum. You can be all Epicurean. You can be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live it up in this world as much as I can. I'm going to indulge as much as I can so that I can have joy and peace. You can try to manufacture it like that, but it won't last. It will be false fruit. The only way to lasting joy and peace is if you know that the Lord of the heavens and the earth loves you personally and is not angry with you. God's love is what makes real joy and peace possible. So start with God's love, and then you can know that even in temporary periods of suffering or disappointment or pain, I've got something much better, something much more lasting on the other side, right around the corner, it's coming, it's coming. And that will give you lasting joy and peace. And when you have lasting joy and peace, what can you do? Oh, then I can be generous. Then I can be compassionate. I can be really compassionate. I won't be thinking about my own woes. I won't be totally preoccupied with my own woes at least. I won't be frozen by them. I can still show compassion to others. So let's bring this around to keeping in step with the Spirit, watching where where the Spirit moves and following accordingly. So if I want to grow in kindness and goodness, my gosh, i got to remind myself of some of Jesus' core teachings that we went through. By the way, so if, if if you, you know, if this is your first time, second time, third time, you might have missed when we went over the core teachings. There's a sheet like this out on the welcome desk in the foyer. List the core teachings. I have to remind myself of these. I have to, to keep allowing these to penetrate my heart so that these core teachings help shape my heart, become part of who I am. So if I want to grow kindness and goodness, what am I doing? Well, I've got to remind myself of the personal nature of God that God creates me, knows me, loves me, takes care of me, is faithful in keeping all of his promises. I have to remind myself of that. I, I, have to, I have to be reminded of the love of God. God dearly loves people, and so should I. So I'm, it's going to help me be kind and good. I have to remind myself of my salvation with God, that I'm saved by God's grace through faith, not through my own works, not through me being good. Else God would be mad with me, but he's not because I'm not saved by my works. So I have to continually allow these core teachings of Jesus to just fill my life, fill my heart. Then I can be kind, I can be good. Kindness lived out through inner goodness is one of the fundamental ways that we live out the fruit of the Spirit. So next week, we're going to talk about another fundamental way. If kindness is bringing good by providing what is helpful, this other way that we'll talk about is bringing good through withholding what is harmful. Talk about that next week. 
this week I want you to focus on kindness. Um, what is one way you can show kindness to one person this week? Be watching for that. Be praying for that. And you may need to return the kindness of the Lord this morning in order just to put yourself in that position of walking in step with the Spirit, making that yourself available to God to, to work through, to, re, to return to the kindness of the Lord this morning. Uh, when, when people hear the word, repent! Um, sometimes they follow that up with, or else! You know what the Bible says about repentance and the motivation of repentance? It's God's kindness. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Luke 6, verse 35 says that God is kind to the ungrateful, kind to the wicked. Oh. So we're going to pray. And I invite you to enter into the kindness of the Lord so that he will shape our hearts so that we can be kind to others. Let's pray. Lord, when I think of of worship, I think of singing, I think of my praise to you and our praise to you, our voices lifted up, but I also need to remember that worship, when we worship you, we are receiving something from you, that you gather us together um, so that we could receive a gift from you. So as we worship you, Lord, we pray that we would receive this gift of kindness from you, that um, we would know that our sins do not separate us from you, but through that Jesus, through Jesus' death on the cross, our sins have been forgiven. And so we do not have to fear your anger. We do not have to wonder if you are begrudgingly inviting us to come to you today. No, you desire deeply for us to come to you. So in that spirit, Lord, um, we want to walk and step with you. We want to hear again your love for us, your compassion. We want to know that you offer new life, life change. We can put our brokenness in our past, allow you to come in, and through your grace and your mercy, you can make us new, that you can bring beauty out of our brokenness. Lord, will you shape our hearts so that we can be free to show your love and kindness to the world around us. We love you. Thank you for giving us this good gift of your love and our Savior Christ. Amen.